All right, we're going to go to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. The series is called Songs for Every Season. And here's what's awesome. A lot of the songs that we have sung throughout church history have come right out of the Psalms. And guess what? I've got a hit for you from 1998, Paul Beloche, that came from Psalm 96. Charlton, play the song. Check it out. Do you know this song? Raise your hand if you recognize this song. Who's heard this song before? It's called Rise Up and Praise Him, right? And this came from this psalm and another psalm together. But the content of that sprang right out of this. Remember, these are songs. And what makes this psalm special is in this psalm, Israel is calling to the world to come and worship the one true God. It is a global call to come and rise up and praise him to sing all the earth. And you are being called today to sing to the one true God. Background of this story, in 1 Chronicles 16, we learn that the Ark of the Covenant, which Moses built, here's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, was just kind of neglected in King Saul's day. And this was the heavenly throne of God on earth. This was the place of God's presence. And they put it in a tent. Here's a picture of the tabernacle. They had it in a tent. There was no permanent structure. It was just this golden filled tent and they moved it about when they were in the wilderness and God did amazing things in that tent. Fire fell from heaven. Well, David said, hey, it's time to bring the ark uh, to a more permanent place. David even had in his heart to build a temple for the Lord. He said, let's get it up here. Well, they made a mistake because as they were moving the ark, they didn't read the instruction manual in the Pentateuch. And so a guy named Uzzah reached out and grabbed it, which was a big no-no, and he died on the spot because he profaned God's presence. Well, then they read the book and they did it right. They brought the Ark of the Covenant up to the city of David, and then there was great singing, praise. David was dancing. This is when he got in trouble with his wife because she couldn't believe how excited he was about praising the Lord, right? This is that story. And guess what? When this event happened, Psalm 96 debuted. This is the psalm that David himself was singing and dancing to in that story. And so it's really cool to know the history of this, of this song. And here's, there's only one point to this sermon. You can write this down, sing to the Lord. Well, there's only one point. Now I know what you're thinking, we're going to get out of here fast if there's only one point to this sermon. But I've got a surprise for you, there's nine subpoints. so buckle up. Nine subpoints. Number one, sing to the Lord. It says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. This song was written a thousand BC. Raise your hand if you like oldies. If you like oldies, if you listen to the oldie station, right? What constitutes oldies? Hopefully the 70s is classic. It's not old, right? That's when I was born. 60s is getting there. 50s is old, right? Oldies, 50s and 60s. Well, how about this? This song that we're studying today is from 1,000 B.C., all right? It's a 3,000-year-old song. This is an oldie, and it's a goodie. It's amazing, the songs that stand the test of time. And it says here, Oh, sing to the Lord. Now, whenever you see the word Lord in, like, all caps there, that's God's covenant name. Sing to the Lord a new song. To the Lord, all the earth. To the Lord, bless his name. This is pretty awesome. To Moses, God revealed his name, the burning bush. 
The idea of the Lord being the I am means he's eternally self-existent. And the idea of lordship means he has power and authority over all creation. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. So fundamentally, this is not like a psalm about 15 ways you should worship God. It primarily focuses on who God is and why that merits him the worship that he deserves. He is the Lord, and he is the sovereign eternal being. That thought alone can scramble your brain. If you go back, rewind the tape all the way back to the very moment of creation, and then subtract that, and there's still God for all eternity. He just is. He never began to be, and he's awesome. Sing to the Lord. Hey, how is your worship right now as we're being called to sing by this psalm? During worship, how are your thoughts? Are you staying focused or is your mind kind of racing with all of the worries and cares of life? How is your heart? Do you feel affectionate toward God? Or are you depressed or angry or distant or distracted or even dead inside? Or do you feel alive and engaged? We're singing to the Lord. And with all of our heart and mind, we should sing for joy. But often people aren't. I saw this uh, video on Instagram about a guy who goes to amusement parks and he's not amused. Check it out. This is the unamused amusement park guy. <laughs> not fun. Big deal. Why am I even here? I think when it comes to worship, we're, we're here to worship God. God is here. And people are just like, hey, we're, you're tempted like me, right? To not throw your whole soul into it. To be that guy, worship. And so we are called to sing to the Lord. And jot this down, all the earth. The earth is called to sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Who? All the earth. Sing to the Lord. All the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Declare his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. How marvelous works among uh, all the peoples. The word glory means weight. Kabod. Weight, meaning the gravity of this divine being should grip the globe with praise. Declare his glory. This is a missional song reflecting, as Derek Kidner observes, first the praise goes upwards to God, then it goes outwards to man. Sing to the Lord, declare it to the nations. And that's how worship truly works. John Piper did quote this. Pastor Mark mentioned it, but here's the picture with the longer quote. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Why do we go? Why do we go? Not to build a name for ourselves, not even to create religious institutions to bring people to worship the one true God. That's the white-hot burning center of the mission, the Great Commission. All the earth. Hey, do you have a heart to see the world reached for Christ? Does your passion to love and praise Jesus overflow? And do you also think 
Not just other people you know, but everyone in the entire world should be singing about Jesus. Too often, because in our day, privatism is one of the most uh, strong forces that we're, that's being preached to us. Keep it to yourself. That's fine for you. But don't tell other people what to think or what to believe. But the true heart of worship is, I worship Christ, and I want the whole world to sing with me to Him. Is that your heart? That's what this psalm is calling us to embrace. Yes! And when we want to see the world reached for Christ, then we say yes to short-term missions. Our team that went out to Ukraine this year, they were inconvenienced. It was the hottest week on record in in a hundred years in ukraine no air conditioning no fans bring it on they went and they said yes i think of our high schoolers who are about to get ready to go back to school you can start a christian club in your school public school private school you can organize christian events you can invite christian speakers you can have 10 20 30 50, 100 students come during lunchtime to hear about Jesus in your school. Say yes to that. Fill out the form. Turn it into the principal. Find a teacher sponsor and watch God go to work. It's all the earth is called to worship. Maybe as you hear about Pastor Mark and Sarah going out, and you've heard about other missionaries going out, or you talk to pastors and youth pastors, maybe you feel like God has been calling you to reach the world with the gospel in some form. Maybe you feel called to be a pastor or a missionary. Maybe you feel called to be a professor at a Christian university or whatever it is to give you. You feel like God's calling you to surrender your life to missions or ministry. Uh, I would just say this. You can't run long from that calling. Uh, God swallowed up Jonah when he was running away from his calling. And God has land whales that will find you and swallow up whatever else it is that you are running toward instead of ministry. Hey, all the earth needs to hear about Christ, and the way he does it is he raises up men and women who surrender their lives vocationally to that call. Maybe it's time to go. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Jot this down. For his salvation. It says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Now, what does the word salvation mean? Maybe you're like me, and you're newer to church and I, when I started going to church in college, I didn't know these big Christian words. You know, they call it Christianese. I'm pretty fluent in it now. But back then, I'm like, salve, what? Salvo, huh? I didn't even know what the word gospel meant. I thought it was just one of the lesser-known categories of awards uh, at, you know, at the Grammys, right? Oh, gospel, yeah, somebody won that award. Moving on. Now I know, but you need to know the word salvation in the Hebrew at its core means to save. God saves. In fact, this word in Hebrew sounds like this, Jeshua, Jeshua. What name does that remind you of? Jeshua, Jeshua, Joshua, right, Joshua. So Joshua's name, they, they turned this attribute of God into a name, right? God saves. What did you name your son? God saves, you know, Jeshua. Well, then when the Greek language took over, they brought this name into Greek, right? And it sounds like Jesus. So Jesus is the Greek name of God saves. Joshua. God saves. And what we learn by that word salvation is God has to save you. 
and he sent Jesus. He literally named him God Saves. Now, if you hear something like that, and you're like, I'm good, you're missing the point, right? God has to save you and me. Now, they're declaring God's salvation here, meaning God saved the nation, Israel. It was a national salvation, brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Moses parted the sea. It was awesome. But that was a preview of the global spiritual salvation Jesus would bring. Jesus would part the waters of sin and death and walk your doomed, enslaved soul safely through on dry ground to the land of promise where you could encounter God on a daily basis. See how that all ties together? So are you a saved person? It's for his salvation that we sing to the Lord. You really don't have much to sing to God about until he saved your soul from hell. Because if he hasn't done that, you're in serious danger. Are you saved? Only then can you sing to your Savior. Why do you sing to God when you show up? Why do you do this church thing? Because God truly pulled you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light? Now here's the thing. It's true that we need to be saved whether you think you're a good person or a bad person. Whether you think you're a religious person or a secular person, you still need to be saved. One pastor said this, when a heroin addict repents, everyone says, well, that makes sense. He really needed Jesus. When a really good kid from a really good family repents, even heroin addicts take notice. When that kid stands in the waters of baptism and declares the mercy of God in his life, everyone looks a little deeper. If his goodness isn't enough, then whose is? So I don't know if you would say, what do I need to be saved from? I'm a pretty good person. Or I don't know if you feel like, I'm the worst of sinners. The things I've done, the things I've said, the places I've been, how could God forgive a sinner like me? No matter where you start, you need to be saved. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord for his salvation. And then it says this, verse 4, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. The Lord made the heavens. Jot this down. Sing to the Lord, abandon all false gods and idols. Abandon all false gods and idols. Since this is a call beyond the borders of Israel to all the nations of the world to come worship the one true God, there's some instructions here given envisioning that it will happen. And as the nations come and flock to worship the one true God, they have to drop the idols before they approach. They can't come in and, and say, Oh, yeah, I worship Baal and God, Ashtoreth, sure, and God, oh, yeah. Uh, they have to drop the idols to approach the holy God. And the same is true of, of us. This psalm confronts the idea that there can be other spiritually uh, valid ways of worshiping God or other gods to be worshiped. It says, He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. We have to abandon all false gods and idols. The world will tell you today that you can worship any god of your choosing or making. And it will tell you that any god will do. It's also popular to believe that all religions basically teach the same thing. Here's a picture that captures all the major world religions with their symbols. And each one of these religions has its own way to pursue spiritual life. 
Um, in some of them, there is a God. Uh, and Islam and Christianity and Judaism actually worship this, the God of Abraham. They do it in different ways and have very different opinions about Jesus Christ. Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism have a different view of the spiritual realm. In Hinduism, everything is spiritually divine. Every, every atom, molecule. In Buddhism, nothing even exists. There's really nothing behind this world, uh, and therefore we have to wake up to that reality. Uh, Taoism believes in more of a balance between good and evil, and I don't know much about Shintoism or Sikhism, um, but here's the point. These religions teach opposite truths about the nature of reality, God. They don't all teach the same thing, and they can't all be true at the same time, which means you have to pick one. Everyone has to pick one. The people who have chosen a different faith are not going to be okay. Therefore, we have to beckon them to drop their idols and to come to the one true God. And whatever it is in their lives, it's, as the Bible calls it, worthless compared to Christ. It will not connect them to God. It will not secure them a spot in salvation. Therefore, they need Jesus. This is a challenge to us as well, because most of us in here wouldn't have uh, little hand-carved idols or trinkets. We wouldn't, um, you know, fall down to actual literal idols. And so the, the biggest idol, really, that we are tempted to worship today is ourselves. You, to put yourself in God's spot and to turn this entire life into um, doing what I want, my way, pursuing my happiness and getting other people to adore me. My career, my family, it is all about me. And if that's the case, you know what Jesus says, you have to take up your cross to follow him, which means you must die to yourself. In other words, a life-giving, saving encounter with Jesus Christ that truly transforms you, you don't survive that. It's not all about you anymore. It's about him. To live is Christ to die is gain. Have you dropped your idols? Have you dropped being focused on you? You're no longer number one. Jesus is. We have to abandon all of our false gods and idols to worship the one true God. Why? It says, it says here, because the Lord uh, made the heavens, in verse 5. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Jot this down. Because he made everything. Because he made everything. Sing to the Lord because he made everything. All the works of God's hands merit him praise and glory. Uh, if you skip ahead in this psalm, it's kind of fun. It says in verse 11, Let the heavens, the skies, be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Now the earth is singing. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Goodness, this psalm is starting to sound like a Disney movie. <laughs> under the sea. It's like the little mermaid. Every, everything in the sea singing to God. Then let the field exult and everything in it. Now the field and field, everything in it is singing to God. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. This is like turning into like a, like a fairy tale. Everything is starting to sing to God. We enjoy the thought, we love the thought and the image of when animals seem to be getting into life, right? Check it out. Here's a picture at the vet of a bird who's really getting into life. And the vet's posted this online. 
just really feeling it. I love, this song paints a picture of the music starts, and, and that's every animal starts to like feel it, and they're all singing to Christ. Can you imagine if that really happened? People would freak out. Like if just one cat started singing praise to Christ, it would be front page news around the world, right? Cat praises Christ. Imagine every animal that start. I mean, this is like, wow. It's unbelievable. And the idea is the personification of nature praising God shows that it owes its all to the handiwork of God. And guess what? You and I, we are created beings. And therefore, we owe our existence to God. Why should we sing to him? Because he made us. We were hand-carved by God for his glory. We sing to our maker. Hey, why do you do this church thing? Why do you get up and come here? Because you have to. Why do you show up? When you stand up and the music starts, what goes on between you and God? Nothing, something, very little. Or do you realize that God put breath in your lungs? God is fueling. He's paying the ComEd bill for that star that keeps us warm and keeps our planet well lit every day. He put earth on an invisible track. It, Earth is a cannonball blasted into space orbiting an incinerator. And there's no harness. And he keeps us safe every day. Do you sing to him because he made everything? Do you sing to him because he loves you and sustains life? Wow. Wow. He made everything. Jot this down. And he is strong and beautiful. It says here, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The attributes of God merit praise. He is omnipotent. He has all strength. His power merits him worship. Maybe you can go to the gym on your best day, and on, on the side of that bar, you can put one, two, three of those, you know, look at me, I'm strong. Put a planet on each side, and then maybe God will be impressed. He is strong. His strength has to exceed the sum total of power in the universe to get it going. He's strong. Wow. So many things show God's power. Storms are often mentioned as showing God's power. The thunder and the lightning. Check it out. Here's a lightning shot from Chi-Town. You know, and if you've been around a lightning strike, the closest I ever got was I was a teacher in the classroom before I was a pastor, and right outside the classroom on the playground field, lightning struck and left a charred mark. And not only I, but the entire classroom erupted in fear. I was screaming, ah! because of the power. And it shows God's power. All energy and matter came from God's power. A lesser known trait about God is his beauty. Sometimes people get confused when you sing about beautiful God, God's beauty. They don't know what to think about that. And often these worship songs that kind of sound like you're telling God he's beautiful kind of sound like a Taylor Swift song. It's like, should I be singing romantic songs to God? It's a little awkward. So we don't spend a ton of time thinking about how God is beautiful. But uh, the idea of beauty, actually, apologists tell me, uh, is a very important way to share that there must be a God. Because there's no rational, material, 
scientific way to explain why things are beautiful, why this sense of awe comes over you. And it's not the chemical math in your body. Beauty tells you there's something bigger, better, and more impressive behind this world. And it's supposed to, to show us that there's a God. Here's a picture of a beautiful uh, scene. And you see, you could just picture, if you see that, you're going to sit down for a little while. You're going to relax. And there's going to be something in your heart that says, this is glorious. This is bigger. This is transcendent. This, people should paint this. this. Something is capturing me. And every, every instance of beauty whether it's a song or a poem or a painting or a sculpture, serves as like a keyhole. And you can look through that keyhole and behind it, there is a being who embodies beauty in its perfect form. He exceeds the beauty of the sum of all beauty in this life. He is beautiful. It's amazing to think of it. God is the beauty from which all beauty draws its inspiration. And therefore, we should praise and adore Him, God above. And we should let nothing capture our hearts on earth except heaven. All that's on earth is meant to alert us to the perfect and glorious expression of those things in God. He is strong. He is beautiful. Praise Him. Praise Him. It says in verse 7, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Now there's a bit of a how. Jot this down. Bring an offering. Bring an offering come into his court. So the nations are called, come, come worship the one true God. Drop your idols. Put that down. Pick up an offering and then come into God's presence. So the idea in the ancient world where we get this word for offering or gift, it was used also for what you would bring to a king. I'm going to see the king. You are? Yes. What are you going to bring? I got to pick out something special because it's a king. You don't go into the king's presence empty-handed. He's making time for you. Perhaps he's doing something for you. You bring a gift. In the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, you don't come to God's presence empty-handed. Now, they would bring offerings of grain, uh, or they would bring wine, or they would bring animals. And the idea of bringing something didn't just show that God meant something to them. See, they bring the first fruits of their crop to show they trusted God to provide the rest. But sometimes they bring um, a lamb or, or something to show that they've sinned and they know that God has to forgive them. So giving in the Old Testament, and this ties into why we give in the New, even though we give in a different way, we give to show our gratitude to God. We give to display our faith that He will provide. We give to show Him that we believe He's forgiven our sins and we're thankful for that. Uh, and, and we give uh, to show him that we're dedicated to him. That's, that's why you would bring an offering. And so I would ask you, as giving here is tied to worship, how is your worship in the area of giving? Are you giving generously to God? Are you giving first to God? Are you giving cheerfully to God? Or are you not giving? 
Uh, are you not giving or not giving much? And why? If you had to write down where your giving plan came from and why you are where you are, what would the motives be? If you've talked about it in your home, what would the conversation have recorded? We know scripturally that God wants us to bring an offering when we worship. All the way back to Genesis, when Cain and Abel came to God's presence, they, they brought an offering. Did God really need a bucket of fruit? <laughs> it was God like, I ran out. Really glad <laughs> that they showed up, early humans, and replenished my supply. No, it's not about that. It's, here's a way for you to show your heart to me. I gave this all to you, you give some back to me. So we know from the very beginning uh, that God has invited us and even commanded us to give. And so we have to just face the reality here that the thought in this psalm of coming with song, coming with song, but without an offering is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Because, because not having the offering is kind of the opposite of what you're saying to God in the song. And so you have to have both of them together. When it comes to giving, we challenge our members uh, and regular tenders to tithe to the Lord here. That kind of draws out of the Old Testament, 10% going first to God out of love. Uh, it's not law, it's love. And uh, our, all of our leaders commit to being tithers to the church to set a great example for others. And that's just where the giving begins. That's the floor, not the ceiling. And when we give, we show to God we're grateful, we trust Him, we love Him. And God loves a cheerful giver. So how's your heart when giving comes up? Is there kind of fear? How would we make it? How would the bills get paid? Is it more ignorance? I never knew that. I don't know how to give. Is it kind of apathy? Like, well, why? Others will do it. Is, does my gift really matter? It could just be a commitment to money, just wanting more and more. And that's, that's greed. We're, we're warned about that. If, if our posture toward money is greed, uh, money is a rival God. And boy, does the Bible make it clear, you cannot serve money and God. If, if money has your heart, God doesn't. It's really black and white in the Scripture. So maybe, and the way to uh, make sure money is not our God is to bring money to our God. That's the way. And so maybe it's time to develop a giving plan. We actually have a worksheet we give out at the beginning of the year, but we have them on the table on your way out. It's just a giving plan. And come to church with a giving plan so that every week you're not just like, well, I don't know, and, and make Pastor Mark and Sarah part of your giving plan. But have a plan, have a giving plan, and then trust God to provide for you. Come into His presence, bring an offering. It says here, bring an offering. It says in verse 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Jot this down, tremble before Him. Tremble before Him. There is a fear element based on what God has done and who He is. We fear the Lord. In His wrath, He flooded the earth in Noah's time. Sodom and Gomorrah had a volcano turned upside down on top of them for their profanity. And when David would go out to battle, often he would talk about thunder and lightning and earthquakes, God bringing the very heavens to war against the enemies of God's people. Tremble before him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus instructed us to not fear man who can only harm the flesh, but God who can throw our souls in hell. And there are some people in this room who have never once in their life feared going to hell. 
And maybe that's you. Maybe you assume that from the moment you were born, you were in the line to heaven. And I just have to tell you that the Bible says from the moment we were born, we were in the wrong line. And if you don't, if you don't process that biblically, I am in the line to hell from the moment I am born. And Jesus has to, and every day I'm a step closer to getting on that. Uh, Jesus has to come and get me out of that. Then you haven't feared God. You haven't trembled before him. And we're commanded to do that. And, and that prompts worship. Look at what he rescued me from. John MacArthur put a picture up there of this quote. He said this, Satan continues his efforts to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less horrific, and the gospel less urgent. Hell less horrific. Isn't that true? And I wonder if you've feared, I wonder if the horror has gripped your heart. And then you've worshipped Christ because he saved you. Tremble before him. Tremble before him. It says in verse 10, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. This is now a picture of the coming future. He will judge the peoples with equity. With equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. Jesus will return. The trumpet will sound. Christ will come back. That is our hope before he comes to judge the earth. Jot this down. Because he will soon judge the earth. Sing. Sing to the Lord. Why? Because he will soon judge the earth. The earth groans, longing for the return of Christ to set everything right. And we are morally responsible to a holy God. Judgment is coming. And we will appear before the judge to give an account for our lives. Jesus is called the judge who stands at the door. Uh, I have shared with you in the past that I have been to the Bridgeview Courthouse several times. Traffic violations. Uh, in my, when I was a you know, college student, I got like two or three traffic tickets and then got pulled over, didn't have insurance. Well, now I've got kids driving and so they're getting tickets. So uh, our oldest daughter got into this fender bender, didn't have the insurance card on her, my fault. She went back to college, and so I've done this before where she's at college and I'm the one who goes to stand before Judge Don in the Bridgeview Courthouse. I think he's the same one I've stood before when I was in college. He doesn't like it when anything out of line happens in his court of law. Eliana Hall? Where is Eliana Hall? Uh, I, you're not her. I know, uh, Your Honor, I'm, I'm her father. She's at college. She needs to be here. I know, Your Honor. It's, this happened last week. I've got the insurance card to, a, like, you know, fearing I'm going to go to jail for the rest of my life if I mess this up. Got the insurance card. I can prove it. She had insurance. He's like, all right, take a look at it. And so the, you know, over there, they look at it. And they're like, all right, she's got insurance. And so then he was kind. And he said, all right, we'll drop the charges and, uh, don't do it again. Yes, Your Honor. While I was sitting there, though, I overheard the judge and his assistant judge talking about a case that had happened before uh, we got there. They were talking about a man in particular who showed up dressed like who knows what, irreverent, got in big trouble with the court, and the judge said, can you believe that guy? What was he even wearing? And they were laughing about this idea that this guy just showed up to the court 
no fear, no reverence, not ready, and he paid the price. I don't know what that is. But man, I can't even process the thought of God thinking, this is my court. Did you see that guy? Who did he think he was? I'm afraid of going to the Bridgeview courthouse like that, let alone heaven's court. Are you ready for that? He will soon judge the earth. Do you sing to the judge knowing that he has forgiven you? It says this, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Jot this down. He is righteous and faithful. He is righteous and faithful. A lot of people have a problem with hell. I can't worship a God who would send people to hell. How many of you have heard people say that before? Well, I can't worship a God who would ever send people to hell. The two problems they have with hell is, number one, they think something unfair is happening. They haven't stopped to actually consider that after a perfectly, thoroughly, just and upright trial, that that person does deserve to go to hell. Then what? Meaning there will be no injustice in God's judgments. Then they say, well, it's unloving. God shouldn't send them to hell. Is something unloving happening when God sends a person to hell who has rejected his every gesture of love? Where is the unloving thing happening, in God or in man? It's in man. The injustice and the unlove is in man, not in God. You really shouldn't have a problem with hell. Sometimes people say, well, you know, because God sends people to hell, I won't worship him. And I say, here's what that's like. That's like saying, get off the plane, it's about to crash. Well, I, I wouldn't follow a God who would allow planes to crash. Get off the plane, it's about to crash. Why would I follow anyone who allows planes to If you would get off the plane, it wouldn't crash. See what I'm saying? Arguing with God about hell perpetuates the problem of hell. And God is making a provision so that no one has to go there. He will judge the world and it will be righteous and faithful because he is perfectly holy and his authority is complete. He has a right to condemn us in our sin, but he has a heart to forgive us in Christ. Hey, have you been forgiven? No worries. Will you stand before God having received the free grace forever in Christ? Do you look forward to an eternity filled with a new earth, new heaven, city of gold, and Christ is the most beautiful thing about it, and you can't wait to sing with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to Christ who saved you. Is that heaven to you, or is that hell to you? I looked up out of curiosity, because this is a psalm about the whole world singing to Christ. I looked up, what have been the biggest concerts in history, like the world singing about something? Do you have a guess as to what the biggest ticketed concert in the United States is? Name a band or an artist who you think might be the biggest ticketed concert in history. Beatles, Bruce Springsteen, you 2 you're all wrong. 1977, the, uh, there, there was a Grateful Dead concert with 107,000 people who came. That's the winner. Grateful Dead. What about the biggest concert in the world? Who do you, 1994, I'll give you the year. Who was it? Who had the biggest concert in the world? Elton John. No, no. 
Uh, Rio de Janeiro, Copacabana Beach, New Year's Eve, 1994. Rod Stewart, baby. It was Rod Stewart. Look out. Uh, so, behold, the best earth can do. It's the best we got. I'm waiting for Christ. I'm waiting for the whole world to sing for Christ. It's going to be better than anything you can ever imagine. Heaven will not receive a one-star rating. It's the best thing beyond your wildest dreams. It starts when you worship Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a great psalm that commemorates so many attributes of you and calls us to salvation. And Jesus, your name means God saves. I just pray for anyone here today who has never become a worshiper of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe they've liked you, maybe they've respected you, but they have never truly worshipped you. Today I pray that you would bring people to sing for joy, Jesus, because you have saved them. And may they have a heart to see the whole world break into song, even all the animals and the trees and, and the rocks, that, to have this desire that the whole world would sing to Christ, because you're worth that. You're worth that. No other artist or band is worth that, but you are. And I pray that you would just swell up within our hearts this passionate praise for you, because you've saved us and you've made us and you're coming, you're coming back. Oh Lord, I pray that you would just swell within us through your spirit a heart of worship and help us to transform earth because of what we see in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.